We do have some uh, dogs here. We're recording with dogs that are quite rowdy to talk about Ruddy. <laughs> They're just too excited. Yeah. They watched every episode of The Offer, so. Listen here, Bob. Paramount is going to come crashing down. We need hits. You've read The Godfather, right? Godfather. Sure. Who hasn't? We've been all over town. No one wants to make this movie. So I need you to produce it. Get going. I can't believe you told me you read it. You better read fast on the plane. Oh, yeah. That's big. The Godfather is bringing us too many problems. You want me to take care of it? Gangster movies are dead. This is not just some gangster film. We need someone who understands Italians. For instance, Ford Coppola, he's got a great vision. We have to put this in the picture. A scene about gangsters arguing over sauce? No. A scene about family arguing over sauce. I got no cast. Do you think Pacino is actually a possibility? Cut it! No Pacino. Marlon Brando is interested. He's a nutcase. Can one thing go right with this picture? You want to make a movie that's going to make my people look like animals, and that ain't going to happen. I respect what you're saying, and I think I have a solution to our problem. Hello, and welcome to the Director's Wall, Season 2 Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm the other co-host, Brian Connolly. And we've got uh, this, I guess it's, it's an official episode, but it's in a way it's a bonus episode. <laughs> but it's official because we only put these out every two months. So yeah. it's not like there's a, another one this week and then this is the extra one. So this yeah. is just another episode. We're just, <laughs> But we're straying away a bit from our, our path that we've been on. Because we are going to talk about uh, the Paramount Plus original series... The Offer, about the making of The Godfather. Yeah, uh, so uh, before we go into it, let's talk about, as always, the Coppola wine we are trying. I believe we've done this one before. I think we've kind of run out of new ones. I think we're only yeah. doing ones that we've done before. The vintage changes, but the uh, wine is the same. But this is the 2019 Pinot Noir made in Oregon, which is interesting. Not California. Yeah, I don't know the story uh, behind that. <laughs> But uh, it's good. It's good on a 100-degree Texas day <laughs> to drink some red wine. That is good. Um, like like I, I say with all these wines. But for the reds especially, like you can just drink it. You know, you don't need the steak to go <laughs> with it. You can be like... You can be like Fat Clemenza at the wedding, <laughs> just gulping down gulping. a pitcher of wine. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I want to fit into the Italian stereotypes that are portrayed in the offer, so I also will be gulping the red wine like I'm in <laughs> the offer. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, but since doing this podcast, I now just buy Coppola wine on the regular when I want a bottle of wine. When I'm like at the store and I'm like, I want some wine tonight. Like, let's do a Coppola because they're inexpensive and they're all really good. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think the most I've paid for one is like $16 um, for the, like, zoetrope one oh, the with fa- the, the foil around it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like, yeah, you buy a bottle of wine and like, oh, but I've got to save it. No, you don't, because you can, it, it's it. affordable. It's yeah. affordable, even in this economy. 
Yeah, I think I always now have a couple of wine on hand just because it's a good, just like second bottle after you've had yeah. the fancier bottle and you're like, I'm a little drunk, so I don't want to waste my palate on the yeah. $30 bottle of wine again. But you know what? A $12 bottle of wine? Yes. Here <laughs> to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Mad Dog Time, the paper boy, Mordecai. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films The World is Wrong About. Available on Paperhouse Network wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> All right, so I guess it's my turn to uh, talk about this since you uh, had the uh, opportunity to go through Bram- Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. And so this is a 10-episode show, so it's 10 hours. Am I going to do the blow-by-blow? No, I think we're going to get into moments of it while we talk about it because uh, there's a lot plot-wise in in this uh, show. Is there a lot going on in the show? I don't know. But plot-wise, there's a lot going on. But basically, the gist of what this is, and, and it's been a long gestating project, is this is not... The making of The Godfather exactly as it was advertised for the last five years or so when they kept promising this as a, th- as a thing. This is, in fact, the autobiography, the, the, the memories of Albert S. Ruddy, one of, one of the producers of the original Godfather slash creator of Hogan's Heroes and producer of Ladybugs. Um, and creator of Walker, Texas Ranger. Oh. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's really, it's, it's not what you think it's going to be, and we'll talk about that. But plot-wise, it's following this young upstart uh, uh, producer named Albert S. Ruddy, played by Miles Teller. And he, it's him basically kind of falling into making The Godfather, teaming up with Paramount Pictures... And uh, teaming up with uh, Robert Evans, played brilliantly by Matthew Good, and you just go through the whole process of The Godfather and all the trials and t- tribulations that may or may not have been true, as uh, Francis Ford Coppola, played by Dan Fogler, and uh, it's just them like battling uh, Albert Ruddy, standing up for the, the Coppola and trying to make this movie, and trying to see the vision through. Uh, battling with uh, the heads of Paramount, uh, Charles Bloodhard, played by Bern Gorman, and Barry Lapidus, played by Colin Hanks. And then it also simultaneously is him dealing with the actual mafia, in particular Joe Colombo, played by Giovanni Ribisi. And then it gets kind of tied into his problem, uh, Colombo's problems with crazy Joe Gallo, played by Joseph Russo. Al Pacino's a character in this. Marlon Brando's a character in this. Ali McGraw's a character in this. Norman Jewison even shows up as a character. Uh, it's a very odd show. Uh, did it need to be 10 hours long? We'll discuss this. But it just takes you through the entirety of how The Godfather came to be. Spoiler alert, they make it. It gets made. <laughs> and it exists as an actual movie called The Godfather. So that's the plot. I don't think I need to go into more detail at this moment. Uh, we can talk through it. I think this will be a little different than our Coppola thing because we don't feel, really need to go into the history or behind the scenes as detailed as we do with all the Coppola stuff because who cares? It's just a 
Paramount Plus TV show. Uh, but it is a fascinating thing. Is it good or not? I don't know. We'll talk about that. Um, it's worth noting the people who made this show, uh, it was created by Leslie Greif, who co-created Walker, Texas Ranger with Albert S. Ruddy. So maybe a little bit of a bias there. And Michael Tolkien, who wrote The Player way long ago, another kind of behind-the-scenes Hollywood movie that I would say is better than the, than the offer. I would, uh, I would agree with you. And the pilot is directed by Dexter Fletcher, who is very in right now with making biopics because he took over Bohemian Rhapsody after uh, the mysterious problems of whatever Brian Singer was up to. Uh, and then he did, did Rocket Man, so he's kind of the go-to guy for this sort of overblown, biased uh, biopic. Let's just dig into this show uh, because I don't really know where to start because it's so long and I don't want to just do episode by episode because it just kind of blends together in my mind because at a certain point it feels like it's following the same arc with every episode. Uh, but yeah, what, where do you wanna, how do you want to talk about this? There's so, a lot to talk about. Let's see where this takes us. Uh, it's 2022. This series was put together, uh, maybe not directly because of, but to coincide with the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. So that's a big one, 50 years since one of the greatest movies ever made. So they did this. Uh, the only problem, I think, is that The Godfather has had a 20th anniversary, a 25th, a 40th, a 45th anniversary, all of which something you know, uh, about the making of The Godfather uh, has, has come out for. So, um, I know, <laughs> I know about the making of The Godfather. And this is like, do, do you want to see it acted out? Like, uh, sure, I guess. This feels <laughs> like it should be a special feature on like a new Godfather box set. <laughs> it, it's just and it should be shorter like, it's watching it it's just like I don't there are parts I did really enjoy of this and there are parts that are really silly of this that I enjoy and parts that are really silly that I thought were incredibly stupid and it was most most of that but it does does feel ultimately very point pointless because it is just it's not like well also I don't really know how true a lot of this is portrayed in the offer like how it, the, the main problem I have is, like, you watch the actual making of The Godfather, which goes into a lot of these details, which are on every DVD version, Blu-ray version. And not once is Al Ruddy even mentioned on the two-hour one. You think his name would come up. If he, if he was such the hero that made this thing happen, that willed it into existence and was the one who fought for it, why is his name not mentioned once by Coppola or anyone else? They talk about Robert Evans a bunch. Yeah, not not <laughs> always positively, but, <laughs> but he mentions Robert up. Evans. <laughs> they even mention like the head of the head of Gulf and Western, Charlie Bluthorn. <laughs> and already is definitely the least interesting character on the show, and it really is sort of like he's there, kind of in the way that a character is in like, for example, that I don't even remember. Uh, the person, but in Hellboy, when you have so and so normal person show up to meet Hellboy and all the other people, you just need that that witness to be the audience to kind of get all the more interesting people introduced, and that's sort of what this is. 
But it's weird because... So he's like the least interesting character on the show. And I feel the writers know that because then halfway through it kind of turns more into the Robert Evans show, which is what the show should have been. Yes. It should have been the yes. kid stays in the picture, the TV miniseries, because uh, the kid stays in the picture is the documentary about Robert Evans, who is an endlessly fascinating individual. And there's a big part of that movie about the making of The Godfather. Couldn't they have gone through him as a failed actor into making love story into making The Godfather and heck you can then do a second season about Chinatown and he's him getting drug bust, busted and like that would have been a show but yeah it feels like the writers realized that Robert Evans was the more interesting character and so by the halfway point of the show it tends to be more about him and that's when it's <laughs> That's why it's interesting because already he's not an interesting character, but Robert, Enle- Robert Evans, endlessly interesting. Yes, and uh, okay, so I like this. What I liked about this was what I liked about Entourage. And what I liked about Entourage was the stuff about making movies, the stuff about being rich in LA and <laughs> uh, you know everything works out for Vinny Chase and, and whatever. Like, that was okay, that was entertaining, but the Best part of the show for me was the stuff with uh, with Ari and his assistant uh, Lloyd, played by Rex Lee, who with Kevin Dillon were the best part of the show. I like hear the stuff with Evans and Coppola and Charlie <laughs> Bluthorn and uh, Colin Hanks is a totally square. Uh, uh, Lapidus, Lapidus. Who doesn't understand the doesn't Godfather understand anything, or like, Chinatown and, or anything. And the stuff with with Coppola. <laughs> like all that movie making stuff. And uh, Ruddy is the producer, so he should be involved in the movie making stuff. But so much of his storyline is about his relationship with uh, Francoise, the, uh, the French, uh, beautiful French owner of a hotel who he just falls into a relationship with. Uh, it's about his relationship with Joe Colombo. It's about the Colombo and his mafia problems. The mafia stuff just made me want to watch The Sopranos <laughs> again. And well, I think one of the big problems of this is it feels so much like a TV show. It doesn't feel like new TV, which feels like movies, like that post-Sopranos, post-Golden like kind of golden age of HBO. Like... This looks cheap. This doesn't... It just feels like the writing. Like, none of it just seems as good as these shows now that feel like mini-movies. It just feels like kind of a poorly thrown together (laughs) television show. Especially in a lot of these celebrity impersonations where it's like the guy who shows up as Brando, who I guess kind of looks like him, but (laughs) but he's doing the voice, or the guy that shows up as Al Pacino, he's doing the voice, and it's like... You're just doing Al Pacino in The Godfather, but I don't think that's how Al Pacino actually is as a person, right? Like, well, because that just... like that shy, that like I'm I'm really I'm really short and and, and shy, but, but I, I really want to be in your movie. That's gone by Godfather Two. You know, he doesn't sound like that in Godfather Two. I mean, he maybe he drank a lot of scotch and smoked a lot of cigars between the sequels. That that stuff. It's like either it's. Uh, distracting to the point of it being funny or it's like you, you don't even notice it 
Yeah, like the guy who plays James Caan doesn't look or feel anything like James Caan. Like James Caan, just like whatever. <laughs> but but when it's the people that you like, but Robert Evans is the only one where you un, you know what Robert Evans looks and sounds like, and that Matthew Good really does, I think, do a great job, and that's what makes it all the more painful. Being like, oh, he should have been the star of his own damn show, because whenever it's with him, I'm in love with the show. Whenever it's with El Ruddy, I don't, especially because every episode, it's the same thing with El Ruddy of. There's an obstacle of trying to get the Godfather made, and he says, "I have a, an idea. It may be crazy. It may not work, but like we're we're gonna try this thing." And then he does, and then it works. And then that <laughs> that kind of keeps happening, and everyone's just it's it's clearly made by people that knew him and made for him. It feels like this is made for his grandchildren. Like he had some long dinner where he went on this rant about the making of the Godfather, and then they're like, "We need to be true to El Ruddy's vision of what that was like," which seems definitely very. Skewed, <laughs> like he is portrayed as the hero who makes the Godfather, who saves Robert Evans from a life of drug addiction, even though that didn't happen until after the Godfather was made. Yeah, by his own admission, Robert <laughs> Evans did not like. By his own admission, he did get really into drugs and messed up, and it you know tanked a good chunk of his life. But he did not start doing cocaine until the eighties. Yeah, and the parts though that I really really liked is when it was. The minutia of the making of where it's like, oh, here's Dean Tavalaris and Gordon Willis talking about like what, how they can make the kitchen set to film in. And I know that's not what most people would care about, but the movie nerd to me was like, that's that's the show that I want to watch. Because yeah. <laughs> there, there's people like the people that are like really into The Godfather, I think, aren't going to maybe even want want to watch this show at all. <laughs> but, like, the people that are watching this show are people like us that will, like, want these scenes between <laughs> Dean Tavalaris and Gordy Willis that that are just, like, like so into the, the like, little stuff about, about the actual, like, filmmaking and, like, oh, like, the actors need to move around. But Gordon Willis has lit it so that they can only—they're only in light if like, they are right here because this is my painting. Like I love that. Yeah, like them having a budget cut meeting is so much more interesting than El Ruddy like hanging out with the mob. Yes, <laughs> yes, it is so much more interesting. The stuff I loved because I'm a nerd and I'm—I love movies. I love that like anything with he's barely in the show with Peter Bart. <laughs> Robert Evans is right hand man who is barely which in was the a show. real person. He's a real person. He's the one who read the the book at the galleys and talked to Evans like we should make this. You should hire Coppola. Um, he has a good uh, scene in one of the later episodes, but uh, yeah, the stuff with him like the, the, making suggestions or trying to explain to the Colin Hanks character Chinatown that scene is yeah. good or it's him defending like why just because the Colin Hanks character is like this is confusing it doesn't make sense this is boring and then he just seems like <laughs> so hurt and he like, explains to Colin Hanks why it's actually brilliant and why it's great uh, great to see Elk, Eric Balfour as Dean Tavalaris I haven't seen him in a long time mm-hmm. since Six Feet and, Under yeah. uh, and for us I think in going through all of Coppola's films and talking about you know the making of and and everything, and we've you, we've really picked up on Dean Tavalaris is in like every he works on every Coppola movie except for uh, Dracula, which 
Colombia wouldn't let Coppola hire Dean Tavolaris because he always goes over budget, they said. <laughs> so someone else did the, the sets for, for Dracula. But uh, so when he shows up, I'm like, yes, of course Dean Tavolaris is a character. He is so important <laughs> to Coppola as a filmmaker. And so sadly, like all those scenes with these characters are not even a third of this show. And I feel you could have made, a, you could have made an Ed Wood-esque two-hour movie of just those moments of them finding the right wall or the right house or do and like and like the the best one of the best scenes which, which actually did happen was uh, them having the big dinner where they're all getting into characters where all the actors are on the table and everyone's taking the seat like it's a family and it's Brando and Pacino and Khan and Diane Keaton and uh, uh, you know and like they're all in Talia Shire and like they're getting to the characters and Coppola's watching it getting all excited like that scene is explained in detail or described in detail on many making ofs of The Godfather Coppola has a very fond memory of that kind of being the moment that it all gelled for me my absolute favorite parts of this were the scenes between Coppola and Mario Puzo arguing about food or eating food where it's uh them in the kitchen like arguing over like what how to make a, a meal an Italian meal or who stole the ham? Who ate all the ham? That is, <laughs> that is the best scene of the series. It really is. Did you eat my ham sandwich? No. Are you, you ate my ham sandwich. No. You ate it. I watched you eat it. I can't like unremember that. Like, this should be the sick a sitcom. Yeah. Just like or that could have been a great movie is you do like just the meals that everyone had while making The Godfather. Because Coppola is, of course, we've talked about this, very obsessed with the detail of meal and dinner time and family around a table and the details of food. And it would be great to tell the whole story of the making of Godfather but only check in on when people are dealing with food. That would have been <laughs> great. But I want to see just a movie of them in that house trying to write the script and arguing over who's still the ham and the right way to make spaghetti sauce. And... Uh, Puzo just like passed out in a pool because like, he ate a whole lasagna. <laughs> so, and here's here's the thing I think that's really telling about the whole series is that and that Coppola and Puzo they did hang out together, but they did not write together. They didn't rent a house no. <laughs> together and like live hold up together while writing the script. Coppola would write, and then he would send it to Puzo and then Puzo would make notes one of the notes was like Clemenza's fr uh, browning the so a sauce and Puzo scratches in like gangsters don't brown gangsters fry that's a scene of dialogue a really charming funny scene of dialogue between the two of them and it didn't really happen the way it actually happened it wasn't real but none of it feels totally real so I'd rather have the not real be about two fat guys arguing arguing over him and then, then coming up with a brilliant idea, and it's just it's such a shame. Like there's a part in the show where Coppola is like, "Hey, let's go out to eat in an Italian restaurant and like let's let's talk about this," and then it, you're like, "Oh, that's gonna be a great scene, like going with Coppola to an Italian restaurant," but instead it goes with Ruddy talking to some gangsters in some third-rate version of The Sopranos. Um, <laughs> like, like you, you've read a lot of the Coppola stuff. Like, it, like, there's a few things in this that I'm like, did this really happen? And I tried to figure out if it would happen. Like, was Frank Sinatra? Like, I knew he didn't. He wasn't happy with the book 
and was worried that the movie version, but was he really that much of a hand of power to try to squash the Godfather as this show portrays it? Also, not a good Sinatra in this. That guy looks nothing like Frank Sinatra. It's like, what is happening? Because there's a part, there's literally a part where it's like, oh, it's Sinatra over there, and I'm looking at the shot, and I'm like, where? Who? Which one? There's like <laughs> eight people, and I don't know which one is supposed to be Frank Sinatra. You guys have failed. Even though I like that actor, he's a guy in Band of Brothers and The Sopranos, but like... Not Frank. He's not a Frank Sinatra type. But like, no. was he really like that much of a like? There's because the show has so much of like Sinatra's gonna stop this movie. He's gonna make it, and everyone's all worried about Sinatra and the gangsters and all this stuff. I don't remember. I mean, I know that. Sinatra did not like The Godfather and would like speak out against it because he thought that character was based on him. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Puzo said it's based on another Italian singer. Which I don't believe is true at all. (laughs) It's clearly Sinatra. But, uh, yeah, I just don't think he had that much power. And, I mean, especially since, like, at that point, his movie career was not, uh, not what it had been in, like, the 50s, you know, with From Here to Eternity... And all that. It's just another one of these obstacles that the show hyperbolizes because there's all this stuff trying to stop The Godfather from happening. And it's it's tough because I really like this movie. I really, really like this movie. And it is really, really good. And it's important. And it's, you know, culturally significant. And it's still, you know, you feel its influence and all these other movies... But uh, there's a lot of this show where that made me think, it's just a movie, guys. <laughs> like, come on. Like, it's, it's just a movie. The thing is, though, there are movies about making of real movies that are great, like Ed Wood, which is about not a great movie, Plan 9 from Outer Space, but that is such a compelling film. And, you, and, like, and that is a movie where certainly they make it seem like it's very important that Edward gets to make Plan 9 from Outer Space and, you know, and all these different characters. Or uh, the, the Citizen Kane one, what's that one called? RKO. RKO 281. That's a great movie. Uh, again, about sort of this making of a real thing. And, like, also interesting. Um, and, yeah, I think that they thought... I mean, the fact that they have so much of the mob stuff in here and that it's 10 hours long makes me think that they... They're trying to make it more interesting than it actually was. Or they don't understand what is actually interesting about the making of The Godfather, which is it's not that the mob was maybe on the out, like outliers of it, like infiltrating it slightly, but just about all these people making this movie and the fact that the movie became such an unexpected hit and classic like out of nowhere, you know? Yeah. Um, the other thing that I was like, is this true? Is they have the thing about... The guy who plays Talia Shire's husband, who plays Carlo Rizzi, uh, Gianni Vito Russo, in this they make it seem like he actually like hurts her in the scenes of abuse or like in the rehearsal. He takes it too far. And so in the scene in The Godfather when James Kahn's character beats him up, he really beats him up in real life because he was so mad that Talia Shire got like hit by him. But I've never heard that as a story ever. Is that, is that true? I have also never heard that as a story, but what I do know to be true is that when James Caan pops out of his car and tears at the, 
at the Carlo, uh, the broom handle he throws was not in the script or choreographed or anything, and no one knows how or where James Caan got a broom handle <laughs> to throw. But Coppola loved it, and it was... I want to say that the fight scene was, like, intense, but I don't know that, like, the actor actually acting. got hurt. Uh, but if I was... Or that, or that he got hurt because he... Uh, you know, abused Talia Shire. It's never mentioned in any interview Talia Shire has ever given. It's not mentioned in the making of The Godfather. I mean, you think it would, because like this is Coppola's actual sister, and if that actually happened, I feel that would have been kind of a big deal. And like this actor Gianni Russo, he's still alive. So what does he think about the show being like? Oh yeah, he got a little punchy with Talia Shire, and then he got abused by James Caan for it on screen. Is like, or or did that happen? Are they were you just making things up about real people that are kind of like not cool? <laughs> I don't know. That is that one scene is it's one of those moments where like well, like it works. It works in the show because I get to you don't even get to see the fight, but you get to see you you know when Al Ruddy's like I've got an idea. And then you know, like, oh, he's going to talk to James Caan, <laughs> and James Caan is going to be very excited to beat someone up. It's just, and when you watch The Kid Stays in a Picture, there's so much real drama and craziness with this era of, of, of in this movie and Robert Evans that you don't need to make up drama, but so much of the show feels the need to make up more things that I don't think really happened. Like, they have them kill, Columbo's men kills crazy Joe Gallo because of The Godfather, basically. Which didn't really happen. That's not who killed him. I don't even. Like, it's just like the way all these things line. Like they're making, they're 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 they're, they're making the timeline more condensed than it actually was. Like he didn't go. Like Ruddy didn't go from Hogan's Heroes and the Reign of the Godfather. Like Hogan's Heroes was like many many years before. It's just it's just sort of odd to play with history and stuff on something so recent and so. A thing that's public knowledge that like they've already made multiple documentaries about, but the writers are just like, oh, let's just figure out. A I would have liked, yeah, I would have liked years and dates featured more prominently in the show because even though I know about how movies are made, and I've I've been tangentially involved in, you know, the 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 makings of movies. I was sort of an office intern once. Uh, so I know, and you all listening know, that just because a movie comes out in a year, say 2022 or 1972, that doesn't mean it started as an idea, got produced, edited, and then released in that year. <laughs> no, maybe but two years before. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> this like started in 1969, the uh, making of the movie and then it, it took years and it was supposed to be Christmas 71 was supposed to be the, the release date but it got it got pushed to uh, March 1972 and Love Story uh, came out in 1970 uh, so th there's a whole year between those yeah. two movies <laughs> and they're like their productions are running parallel because they were I mean there, there's just confusion on exactly when how long things take to happen <laughs> especially since when the show begins like 
uh, Ruddy gets his job. Uh, uh, you know, he just falls into a job uh, making Hogan's <laughs> heroes. Because yeah. we'll, he met someone at a party. It's just like it's. It all seems to be very. We'll uh, talk more about about <laughs> that later. Uh, that and then Puzo writes writes the book. He wrote The Godfather for the money. He needed a hit book, and so he wrote The Godfather, but he didn't want to write it. He didn't want to write about the mafia, so it took him three years to write the book. But that, Or three days, according to this yeah. show. <laughs> yeah, you know, that makes then, sense. You can write a book in like a month. <laughs> and then it's, it's all... Uh, done and then like optioned and by the end of episode two or like by episode two the ostent like five years have passed and then but then once they start shooting the movie i thought like maybe like there would be one episode like where like all the shooting gets done but the shooting of the movie is maybe several episodes the bulk of the show yeah, yeah. um <laughs> so that was a bit confused <laughs> I think that another thing that I found amusing on this show was all the Italian stereotypes for a show about the making of a movie where the director was really trying hard to not make a, a gangster movie with Italian stereotypes. Like so much of when you watch the behind the scenes of The Godfather or the commentary from Coppola is him talking about like he didn't want it to just be a stereotypical – like he wanted actual Italians to be in it because all the gangster movies made before this, they weren't. And then he wanted it to be respectful and wanted it to be more about family and not have it be just all the Italian stereotypes. But there's so many Italian stereotypes in this movie or the show, like whether it's Mario Puzo constantly only eating like pasta or just like <laughs> there's a scene where – well, like all the gangsters are just portrayed as like the dumbest idiots in the world – like, all of Joe Colombo's men, including Joe Colombo, just seem like the most dim people who just don't understand basic things. You know, because they're just like these goombas that they don't get how the things work. And uh, and whenever they show up, it just seems like, oh, here come the big dummies. And then the part that I thought was the most funny is there's a part, who knows if this was true or not, where Ruddy had this brilliant idea to have the screening just for the mafia because he didn't want them to show up at the actual Paramount premiere. And there's literally a scene of like a theater full of guys dressed up as like stereotypical Italians, and they're all going, "Oh hell!" When they're watching the movie, they're it's, like watching the Godfather, they're going, "Oh hey, oh!" It's just like the it's most... like when it's like when the Gremlins uh, watch <laughs> like, Snow White at the end of Gremlins. <laughs> yeah, but like they can get away with it, you know, because Italians are basically white people. But could you imagine yeah. if it was like we're gonna have a room full of the Chinese and they're all gonna react in this way? Yeah. That's kind of what it feels like <laughs> to me being an Italian American. It seems very racist. It's just straight up racist uh, towards Italians. It's like full of so many stereotypes and so many just like. But it's just because it's just it, it's offensive because Coppola really was so hard to try not to have his movie be like that. And there isn't a lot of stereotypical Italian people in The Godfather. Like, there is, like, you know, Luca Brazzi, and there's, like, characters where it makes sense that they're maybe the more, like, the less intelligent, like, because he's the hitman or whatever. But it's, like, Al Pacino, Marlon Brando, like, James Caan, uh, they aren't playing this, like, stereotypical, like, Goomba character. Yeah, even, uh, like, uh, Sonny is, like... He's not dumb. He is not clever, like Michael. So he like 
falls into a trap, but he's not a dumb character. It's like uh, John Cazale's Fredo is, he's barely in the movie, uh, you know, uh, all honesty, but he's, he's not dumb. No. He's just not cut out for the life. <laughs> and there's a really funny part where Coppola's complaining that Khan isn't even Italian, played by Dan Fogler, who is Jewish, and not Italian playing Coppola. Because James Kahn is Jewish, but who cares? He's great as uh, is an Italian-American in The Godfather. But I thought that was a funny thing. And actually, Dan Fulger is totally great in this. I really thought he was good I have to say, as a Coppola. Um, I have to say yes. Uh, I think at first when I heard this cast, I was extremely skeptical to the <laughs> point of, well, I'm just going to not mention it to Brian, and then maybe we won't watch this show. <laughs> uh, How can we not... How could we not watch this show and talk about it? Yeah. So, but actually watching the show, Dan Fogler is... He's great. He's good as Coppola because yeah. uh, unlike Robert Evans, who has won a very, very specific voice. Yeah. If we had recorded last week when I had a cold, I could have done a really great <laughs> Robert Evans impression. <laughs> like Coppola has, you, has his own voice, but it's not... A terribly distinct voice. You can't do a Francis Coppola impression, you know. Yeah. Um, he was like he was the fat Italian guy, and you see photos of him like 1972. He's big beard. Big beard. He's like not really that fat. It's like okay, he doesn't have a, a six pack in a, in that photo where he's not wearing a shirt. Okay, but like that's how everyone treated him. Okay, that's how everyone saw him. So we cast Dan Fogler and. It, and it, it all works. Like, with the beard, it looks convincing. I feel he must be shorter than Coppola actually is because Dan Fogler seems quite short. He does seem the shortest Whereas person. I don't think Coppola is a short man. I, I might be wrong. I don't know because he's next to actors who are all short. So well, I, I never got that impression. And, I mean, you have Matthew Good in there who's, like... Very tall. Yeah, I mean, he's a skinny, what, 6'4", six, 6'5"? Six, I didn't look that up. But um, the one thing I didn't like about his performance is whenever they needed Coppola to be serious like uh, here, here's the house where this is going to be the Corleone compound and he sees it and then it's like if just any person had to pretend to be serious he just kind of like drops his smile and like takes out a camera and just starts like looking at it like <laughs> oh like, like I'm, I'm being really serious right now and he has the same thing with uh when uh, the guy playing Brando like puts on the brand, the Godfather, the Don Corleone makeup, it's just like he's just doing his like the director hand thing that they do where they make the two yeah. L shapes and look through it as if it's a viewfinder, you know, camera. Yeah, um, and uh, but everyone else's reaction to that is also insane. <laughs> I mean, definitely, it feels like Coppola and Puzo are the comic relief that they are like the jesters of the movie. Like whenever yeah. they show up, it's going to be to be funny. That it feels yeah, like which that that is true and I like it. In the final episode when they're at the Oscars and Coppola is in like a velour orange <laughs> tuxedo with booties. <laughs> he's not wearing normal shoes. He's like uh, on something weird. But yeah, everyone's in black and white tuxes and he's in this big orange tuxedo. Did he really wear something like that to the Oscars for for 19 I don't remember. I haven't seen those pictures in a while. <laughs> and, you know, I feel like if I had, that would have stuck with me. 
I don't know. This movie, Al Ruddy remembers all these details. Yeah, well, he doesn't uh, remember what kind of hair he had because at the end when they show a photo of Al Ruddy, <laughs> he does not have the hair that uh, Miles Teller has or the weird, like, no fake, like, fake eyebrows slash no eyebrows that Miles Teller has for most of the show. It, it looks like he lost his eyebrows and someone like drew them on, just drew like semicircles on. The best episodes uh, were directed by Adam Arkin, I noticed. Did you notice that? Like the ones that actually felt like interesting to look at were the, like he directed four of these episodes. Is it Alan Arkin's son? Uh, and he did the best he could for their limited budget, especially the Oscar sequence, which is clearly an audience of 10 people, but shot in close mm-hmm. up. Uh, to make it seem like, and that's the weird thing too. Is like I don't know if this is a Paramount Plus thing, but it's like, why wasn't there more money behind this? This feels so cheap, and why couldn't they have paid a little more money to make it just feel it's a more show. like a show? It's a show it's- about how great their brand is. It's a show about like it's like oh like Paramount oh, is the New- best. Yeah, New York City was a character in this movie. Like Paramount was a character in this movie. Mm-hmm. You think, and this was like, hey, we made one of the greatest movies ever. Actually, they at the end in the text say it's the greatest movie ever, <laughs> which is a bold like like statement to make, not with no modifiers, not one of, but the greatest the... movie ever. <laughs> Why not put more, like, put all your money into it. They're not doing more Twilight Zone episodes. This like, is the only reason why I even went on Paramount Plus. <coughs> and I don't know if I'll be going back to, to Paramount Plus. Because it's like, if this is the best you can do, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, the sound of my dog chewing on a toy. But it beats barking. So it's like, it is, it is funny though. Um, as silly as the show is and how dumb it is, I really wish there was more of stuff like this in a way. Like, I really would love to see more shows about, like, better, more well-made shows about the making of a movie. And I was talking about this with Andras Jones, my co-host on the World is Wrong podcast, and we're just like, this is, like, our... Like, remember those movies that came out in the 90s of, like, the making of The Brady Bunch or Saved by the Bell, and they had actors play them and went through the drama of it I feel like that's what this is to me like to the film enthusiast I would love to see a whole movie about the making of what name the movie I don't care like it's just like I love this kind of stuff and I should love this show but I don't because it just doesn't really work but like I would love to see Robert Evans try to make Chinatown with Polanski and Jack Nicholson and Robert Town and like that would be a great or The Exorcist, like the making of The Exorcist, and you have someone be William Freakin and all this, like that would be f- fun. But I feel because this this show doesn't seem to be on anyone's radar, strangely. Like I don't know anyone else other than you who's actually watched the, <laughs> watched the show. Like I bring it up to people, and they're like, "The Offer, what is that? I don't know what that is." I'm like, "Oh, it's a show about the making of The Offer." Like, "Oh, I've never heard of it." So they didn't do a good job of really promoting it. And also, I think if the show was really good, word of mouth would have spread and people would have watched it. But the fact that it's just so nothing. <laughs> it's a niche. It, this show is a niche, but it is trying to be – the material is a niche. But it is trying to be a broadly appealing show with all its like mafia 
yeah. stuff and the excitement of like guns and explosions. Um, <laughs> but, but this is not a show that regular people are going to ever watch. They don't care. Like my parents don't care about the making of The Godfather. They're not going to watch this show. And it is funny. It does do the thing where like every episode has that cliffhanger of like, will they be able to make The Godfather? And it's like, well, yeah, that's why the show exists. Of course they are. It's just... <laughs> so there's... Um... It's not like the Titanic where you're like, I know the Titanic seeks, but I don't know whether these made-up characters will make it out alive or not. You know, So there is some sense of peril or drama. Whereas this, you're like, well, I know what happens to all these people because these are all real people. And I know they make The Godfather, and I know that all the battles that they have with Paramount work out in the end for everybody. And the movie gets made, and it's a classic, and it makes money, and it wins Oscars. So it's like I don't really get stretching out that drama of like, oh, I wonder if Al Ruddy's going to pull this off. It's like, well, it, yeah, he does, or someone did. Like, yeah, it, under, it undercuts <laughs> the drama that they're going for. It, it, undercuts, it undercuts the real drama. It undercuts the you know, hyperbolized drama. Because we know what happens, so like there is no real tension, and then it's like okay, like hey everybody, it works out. Trust me, I know. <laughs> and like that's why I think this would have been better as like a feature, like a ninety-minute movie, and you can have the fun scenes of like oh, it's fun that the studio doesn't understand that this is going to be a thing, but the fact that the show is ten hours long and it tries to build this tension of like will they, will already pull this off? it's like, well, yeah. And so it just kind of gets boring after a while because you basically made the show just about the guy with the credit card, you know. And that literally is like in the movie where there's a part where he's like, I'm just the guy who pays for it. And it's like, you made the show about the guy who pays for it. And it's when it, that's what's going to keep happening. Like, these are what producers do. They're the problem solvers. So the shows keep having little problems. And he's like, this is how you get the horse's head or this is how we'll shoot in New York. And it just isn't that interesting stretched out to 10 hours. Just to see the producer figure out constantly how to make this movie happen that we all know happens. Uh, one of the big problems with this show and what took me, I mean, took me a while to get into it to the extent that I got into the show, meaning when it started to focus more on Evans, is that this, you could call this like white privilege the series. Uh, <laughs> it's about an average kind of bland uh, anonymous white guy in the 60s who works at the Rand Corporation which I guess does stuff <laughs> like they're involved with the government right yeah um, computer stuff maybe <laughs> I didn't care enough to look into it <laughs> and he goes to a party one day uh, meets someone who kind of works in TV and, or meets an actor and then he then is able to go with that actor to a meeting to pitch an idea for a TV show that he has, and it's Hogan's Heroes. And the studio executives are like, like, war comedy? Nah, it'll never work. You can't make a Nazis funny. <laughs> and then he like acts out an episode, and it's like, okay, like, yeah, you're right. And then there's also this beautiful French woman, and a very rich French woman, because she owns this hotel. And she's just like, you and me, we're going to have sex, and I'm going to be your girlfriend. It's like, okay. It's like, okay. <laughs> and then, uh, and yeah, Hogan's Heroes lasted many years, but in this, it's like, well, he did that one thing, like did that episode, and now he just shows up on the Paramount lot, 
and then finds Robert Evans like hey I want to like work for you I want to do what you do and Evans is like well all right I'll give you a shot <laughs> but you've never produced movies before well don't worry because there's this character Betty played wonderfully by Juno Temple who's been better in other things but she's pretty good here too she knows how to produce movies and she will be producing this movie for you basically doing everything and you'll get all the credit and you'll, you'll win get the Oscar. all the credit <laughs> you'll get the mini series about you and how great you are uh, I don't know if you noticed or not, AJ, but uh, white men are kind of given a pass on a lot of things in life and have it pretty easy. Uh, and that's definitely, like, this is definitely, like, yeah. Like, they're not going to, like, anyone else be like, hey, do you want to produce a movie? Oh, oh okay. Only the white guys getting these opportunities still in 2020. Yeah. So, yeah, Juno Temple is great. She's basically playing... Uh, like a lesser version of her character from uh, Ted Lasso where she also plays an extremely uh, competent and capable uh, businesswoman and she like yeah she knows everything about the movie business so she like makes all the calls and Ruddy's like oh I don't know like can you call this person <laughs> like yep I'll call him and there she has a lot of scenes where she talks to Charlie Bluthorn the yeah. The head of the whole corporation. Because for some reason he's like really into her. Maybe because she's a blonde white woman. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh... And so she rescues a lot of. She rescues Ruddy basically in every episode. Since this show's already like a bunch of baloney lies, why not make the show about her? And then you actually have someone who's like really overcoming like obstacles and really at a time when it's like a boys' club. And just make it to seem like she's the one who made the Godfather happen and save it. Because when it's just Al Ruddy, you're like, and so this white guy who already had a pretty good life and was making money and has his hot girlfriend gets to make the movie and wins the award and isn't that great? And you're like, okay, like what obstacles is this guy getting over? Like what is he? There's, what is this? Like what is this? Mean? I think what it's does this in. Mean? Um, I don't understand. I think it's in episode four when Ruddy hits rock bottom, and his rock bottom is like he he breaks up with uh, Francoise finally, and I say finally because good for her she can like move on, and the show. To like show the strain in their relationship, decide to make her like an idiot from like one episode to the next. Mm -hmm. So she's just like a fine, like you know, capable, confident uh, businesswoman. And then in the next episode, they have the problem with uh, Sinatra, and she's like, "Oh, I have the, I have an idea. You should cast Sinatra as the Don." And she says this to Evans, and then Evans is furious about this. And then gets after Ruddy, and then Ruddy is like has to talk to her, and it's like, oh yeah, she's like doesn't know anything about producing movies, but she wants to produce movies. Like you can't. And then he tells her about how you can't just go producing movies if you don't know how to produce a movie, even though he doesn't know how to produce a movie. Juno Temple's Betty is producing this movie. <laughs> And then she she breaks up with him, and then uh, they are able to finally uh, cast Pacino. And Evans doesn't want Pacino, but he finally says okay. And then uh, Pacino says, "Oh, I, I'm 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 real sorry, but I I already signed a contract to to do the gang that couldn't shoot straight for MGM." 
Sorry, guys. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Ruddy then has sex with a beautiful casting director because that's a low point for him. <laughs> and and she she's laying in bed. She's like uh, on her stomach in bed and the sheets like down to her waist and he's getting dressed. And it looks like he's just killed her. She's just laying there still and he's like so like serious and getting dressed You're like did he kill her what's going on and then he goes on like a lost weekend style walk through Times square and walks by all the peep shows and then <laughs> looks in a mirror and is like oh what is happening i what can't have I believe become? i had sex with that beautiful woman and my movie and, may or may not happen and al pacino's gonna get cast anyway <laughs> i know it happens that that's the most that's the best example I can think of for the lack of tension, the false drama of this show. Which is why it should have been about Robert Evans, because there actually was drama with him, because around this time was when him and Ally McGraw were having problems because she was having an affair with Steve McQueen on the on the set of the getaway. I don't remember if that exactly is the same timeline and they fudged that, but like it, it's, it's around, yeah, it's because around he, was paying, there. he was paying more attention. I, I did watch in prep for this. I watched the kids say he's in the picture because uh, it's probably not a good thing when your show or movie just makes the viewer want to watch other things. I'm like, I just want to watch The Godfather again. <laughs> and the kids I just in want the to picture. watch the kids say he's in the picture. So I watched it. And that's <laughs> too, a really dramatic, <laughs> it's a really dramatic moment where uh, he calls Allie on the phone and she either admits to having an affair or Evans knows something is up so he flies out to where they're shooting the getaway in El Paso and tries to patch things up but it's too late by that point and their marriage is over and that is uh, dramatized pretty well in this show and then in Kids Stays in the Picture Evans so he says <laughs> now and 40 minutes later I was back in Los Angeles now and 40 minutes it took uh, it took infidelity for me to realize that it was only it was only ninety minutes that could have saved my marriage. <laughs> like yeah, he he could have been making that trip, you know, more often to uh, you know show Ali McGraw that he did care about her and appreciate her, but he didn't. And then after it was broke, after their marriage was over, he's like, oh, a plane ride was all it took. I could have done this plane ride earlier. And it's a very poignant uh, moment in Kid Stays in the Picture, which is like when the poignancy and Robert Evans don't seem like they would go together, but they do. And in this show, they'd have that moment, but then sadly when Evans gets depressed, he just kind of vanishes from the show. Yeah, And a lot of people being like, where's Evans? What's he doing? Because supposedly he's on some coke bender, which never really happened at this point in his life. He did eventually go on coke benders, but not... (laughs) In the early 70s. It seemed like, yeah, like after Chinatown was when he got into that. But, uh, yeah, you know, like the show's missing all its emotional beats because it should have been about literally anyone other than Al Ray. So then uh, Matthew Good as Evans is great. I want to talk about him now. He nails that impression cl- as close as anybody can sustain it for 
a TV show, a movie. Yeah. And he does it without like holding, without pinching his nose, which is pretty impressive. And it doesn't feel like a joke like the more rich little impersonations of Pacino and Brando that we have in this, in this show. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel like it could have very easily been like, oh, this Robert Evans feels like that Mr. Show skit where Bob Odenkirk is doing God as Robert Evans. Like mm-hmm. it could have been like a total like, because Robert Evans is a very famous way of talking and looking, you know, for people to know who he is. Uh, but it doesn't feel silly. It doesn't feel like a, a Saturday Night Live skit. It like really does. Like he really is a great character in the show. And I don't know how they knew the actor could do that because the only other thing I ever saw him in was that terrible uh, Irish rom com that he did with Amy Adams. <laughs> uh, that would be Leap Year. Leap Year, and he's totally fine in it. But like, who thought looking at that guy being like, you know, who'd be a great Robert Evans? That guy. I. Uh... <laughs> I, li- I really like Matthew Good. I would not have thought of him for Robert Evans. And when I like heard that casting, I was like, I, are you sure? I don't know. But it makes sense and it works because the, the great thing about Matthew Good is that there is something diabolical about him. Something very like dangerous but also kind of uh, mesmerizing, uh, which is why... M- Maybe one of his best roles is in uh, Stoker, the uh, Park Chan-wook film, where he's, it's sort of like a remake of Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. But it kind of does make sense because uh, Patton Patton Oswalt describes Robert Evans as, (laughs) he describes his voice as it sounds like the, the devil narrating his memoirs on a sunny day in an open bathrobe. <laughs> oh, but that Penn Oswalt bit is so good, by the way. Like, uh, Google Penn Oswalt Robert Evans, and that is a, it's a real treat. That's a great stand-up bit that, that uh, I highly recommend. <laughs> so, uh, and so you get, uh, like, there is something in that, like, uh, that darker side of Matthew Good. Uh, that then plays with uh, the charisma, the real charisma that Robert Evans had. He was this like improbably charming and interesting figure. Yeah. And that's really captured here. When he goes on his bender, it's great. He does cocaine in a club and then starts some, uh, I don't want to exaggerate, but it's like, it reminded me of Crispin Glover's dance moves. Oh, on Friday the 13th, and Friday the 13th. It's just for like a couple seconds. He's in the background. <laughs> he does cocaine and then just starts like moving wildly. Like he's a, 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 a wacky willy and arm flailing inflatable tube man. And But then he disappears from the show. And you're like, the show isn't becomes, good anymore. <laughs> it becomes not good. And then... He comes back in at the very end to save the Godfather from uh, Barry Lapidus, Lapidus, Colin Hanks, who has always wanted to be head of Paramount, and now Evans has disappeared. And so he's taken over, and he's like, we're going to get rid of these movies. He's telling Peter Bart, we're going to like pitch me Chinatown. Like, no, that sounds terrible. We're going to do all these things this way and change names of movies to stupid things. It's just, it's a thankless role that Colin Hanks has. <laughs> he plays a jerk really well. Like, you definitely, like, hate him in this. Yeah. 
and then, <laughs> but then Evan comes back from out of nowhere. There are two cuts of The Godfather, and the real story behind those is not really what happens in the movie. Evan comes in and says, like, the longer cut is better. We need to go with that. This poster is terrible. Like, people standing in a flying V, our research shows people don't like posters where people stand in flying Vs. What we should do is use the artwork from the book, which was Coppola's idea. And there's something very, uh, like, almost like Clark Kent slash Superman about him in that moment. They gave him these big glasses, and then the hair, the wig that they put on him, is like a Clark Kent wig. <laughs> so yeah. it seems like a version of Superman has come in <laughs> to save the Godfather. The other thing, which it didn't happen in the show that I was kind of furious about, but then we got a different version of it, was Robert Evans made a little film to show to the investors, the money, New York money people at Paramount when they wanted to close down the studio. I don't know if they were going to sell it or just close it down like uh, permanently. And this was in like 1970 or so. And so he made a short film where he described the movies that they had coming up in Paramount. Which you can see, I feel, in its entirety or almost in its entirety in The Kid Who Stays in the Picture, which is great. They play, play it uncut <clears throat> or just like one long uninterrupted moment of this. of this. And it's great. And he talks about – the movie he really talks about is Love Story. And at the very end, he talks about The Godfather. And he ends with this uh, impassioned speech about like here at Paramount, you know, we make our own luck and we have a – Vision and what we do, you know, stands apart, and this is why. And so, his uh, like the impassioned speech he gives in that short film convinced the uh, the stockholders, the money people in New York to keep the studio open. And then, Love Story happened, and it was a huge hit. And then, The Godfather happened, and it was a huge hit. That doesn't happen in the show, and like, Love Story opens and is a hit, and like, okay, I thought, I guess they're not going to do that. And that short film was directed by Mike Nichols, so I was totally expecting a scene where he's filming that and says, like, thanks for doing this, Mike. Mike Nichols. Yeah. But then, in a later episode, we do get a scene where. The stockholders, they're going to pull the plug on The Godfather. And Evans flies to New York and busts in on the board meeting. <laughs> and they're like, you can't be in here. Because they're going to sell the studio. Gulf and Western's going to sell the studio. And Evans gives a big speech about the dreams that you know, Hollywood creates. And this, we make our own luck. And it's uh, an abbreviated amended version of the speech he gives in that little film. So Matthew Good does get to give this great speech convincing a bunch of uh, skeptical, you know, uncreative money people, a bunch of suits, why they should stay in the movie business, just in a different way. So I still got that moment. <laughs> like, I still got a good Matthew Good scene. <laughs> but just in a different way that... I think, again, undercuts the actual drama of the real story of what happened because it's, like, so focused on The Godfather. But in, you know, real life, it was, the, like, all the movies. And he had to convince them on all the movies that were coming up. 
all all movies that are, were now classic like hits, like he was right, like he yeah. basically saved or convinced the whole studio to to go with his plan. How much of a letdown is the last episode of the show when you think you hope you, you forget like. I keep I kept getting tricked watching the show, forgetting that it was about El Ruddy, and whenever it would not be about El Ruddy, it'd be like in my mind, the better show would happen. And so the last episode, where like it feels like there's an hour left, and like, well, the Godfather's already done; it's already winning Oscars. What's gonna be left? I'm like, ooh, are they gonna go into the Godfather Part Two? No, because El Ruddy had nothing to do with Godfather Part Two. So it's about the longest yard. So you have like. This terrible Burt Reynolds uh, show up who might as well have been Norm MacDonald in SNL. Doesn't look anything like Burt Reynolds I mean, or sound like... And like It's just so ridiculous. And you're like, I don't care what is happening. Oh, I think the show thinks that we care about El Ruddy and what he's doing and none of, nobody gives a shit. We're all wondering what the fuck's going on with Godfather 2. We don't care about El Ruddy making the longest yard. But it goes into so much... To the point where they're even on the set of The Longest Yard, and it's like, who cares? <laughs> like, I love that movie, but this show's about the fucking Godfather, but it really isn't. In the end, it just tells you, like, no, you thought this was about the making of The Godfather. You, when you started the show, you thought that, no, this is about Al Ruddy, even though nobody cares and nobody wants that. All the way to the end, we're going to make it about Ruddy and the fact that he made this. And, I, and it almost feels like... If this was a hit, they were hoping to do a second season about The Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds and what was it like to make a crazy movie using a prison or blah, blah, blah. It's really dumb. <laughs> they, like, really go with that. And, like, everyone wants... Really go with that. <clears throat> That's what the last episode is kind of about. Everyone wants to make The Godfather Part Two, but he wants to do his own thing. And, like, I don't... Care. Like, I mean, it's, yeah, The Longest Yard, it is a good movie. You might even say a classic movie. It's such it's a, such a good story that there have been many, many remakes of it. And they all do reasonably well. The Adam Sandler remake, totally great. Adam Sandler remake, there was a British version of it. There's even movies like it, like Necessary Roughness, or like just the idea of like, let's take these crazy, you know, like rough and tumble people and... Form a sports team. <laughs> John Houston did one that was actually like in an actual Nazi camp. Uh, oh. Victory with uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone. Isn't Michael Caine in that? Yeah. But Coppola, at this point, has already made the conversation and is getting ready to make The Godfather Part 2. Uh, Betty is going to launch her own uh, talent management agency. That's interesting. Uh, Evans is going to produce Chinatown on his own. I mean, the show is about Ruddy, so it doesn't really care that Robert <laughs> Evans producing Chinatown on his own with his name on the poster was a big deal. It's like studio heads don't put their names on posters. But Evans wanted a raise, and instead of a raise, Charlie Bluthorn said, you can have your own production banner. Like, your name, you'll be the producer, your name will be on the poster. And the, the, the first movie of that deal was Chinatown. Like, he actually was way more involved with uh, Chinatown than, you know, he was with, like, The Godfather, say. Uh, that would be an interesting story. <laughs> Mario Puzo eating more food and forgetting about it. <laughs> One big uh, noticeable thing missing in the show, which I feel means that they didn't 
or maybe it's just because we've been studying Coppola, but it's like all it really requires you is to watch the making of The Godfather, you know, is the lack of Coppola's family around the, the set. Because like clearly, if you watch anything with Coppola or about Coppola, he's all about his family. Like it seems like the, it is the most important thing. And he always includes his family in every project he's ever done, it feels like. And like, but there is no Eleanor Coppola, his wife, in the show at all. Like, she's just, it, it's, if you watch this and didn't know anything, you just think Coppola was just a single dude making a movie. But he had his kids around the set all the time. And there's a great thing he did, a story of, uh, he, uh, I think it was Roman, where they, where they, he filmed, or they, they did a rehearsal of the scene of Talia Sher being like hit with the belt and stuff by her husband, but he did it with his son and filmed it and practiced a scene where right, they wrecked right. the set. Because the movie and, wasn't the, some executives, producers, not ready, I guess, thought the movie wasn't violent enough. So he's like, well, here's the scene. We'll film the scene where Carlo beats up Talia Shire, but it's going to be like my son. <laughs> and that would have been a funny scene. Yeah. But it's just weird that there's no mention of his family at all. And they really even don't really go into Talia Shire being his sister that much. Like if you weren't really paying attention or knew, you would kind of maybe miss that point. It's such like, a shrug. It's, Weird that they don't seem to have a relationship in this show like a brother and sister. It really is just like some actress who shows up to be in The Godfather. It's such a shrug of a moment where the casting directors like Anne, like uh, Francis wants to cast his sister as as Connie, and Ruddy's like, yeah, like she's she's a solid <laughs> choice. All right, <laughs> but it's where they Next wouldn't thing. have some emotional. There's no emotional connection between them in the show at all. Like, and uh, that's why I think the 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 part of of uh, the, the the Carlo like actually hitting hitting Talia, Francis Dan Fogler's Francis is like very upset and wants to do something about it. But I feel like if that really happened, Francis being the like you know like a big family man that he is, very like protective uh, family man, like something would have happened. Like we would have. We would have heard about heard this. About we, that would have been a thing that would have, Something he would have else brought would up. Have happened. Like in the commentary during that scene, he would have said, oh, we did that because he hit my sister and that made me so... Because also Coppola seems very open about all the things that go on on his movie sets. When you watch any making of, he doesn't really seem to have any shame about when he fucks up or whatever happens. He's very... Or any drama or making someone else look bad or whatever. He'll just tell the truth, it feels like. He's yeah. sure he exaggerates a bit. But it doesn't seem like he would like not talk about something. Coppola is you know? also he's he's very open but diplomatic about the people he doesn't like. <laughs> so like he'll bring up someone that he doesn't like, and you'll know that he like has a lot harsher words for them, <laughs> but doesn't say them. So that's yeah. Speaking of which, uh, the reactions from the people who actually were on the God for they're really interesting f- towards this show. They talked to Coppola was asked about it back uh, when the show started, and his answer was, "I'm not going to watch it. This isn't kind of the Godfather that I remember. It's not the making of it. This is just some, you know, story, some memories of of a producer. He doesn't even say already. He just says a producer, which shows how much already <laughs> refers to him as a producer." And then the only positive one actually was from Al Pacino, whom I'm sure actually act, never actually watched it, but had when asked about it at the Heat 25th anniversary Q&A, 
he said, oh, that guy who plays me is really good. He does a great job. And I don't think he actually saw it, but I think Al Pacino is just a really, really nice guy. And was just saying that because he knew that that actor, it would mean a lot to that actor to hear that he did a great job as Pacino, even though he doesn't really do a good job. But uh, <laughs> when they do the making of Jack and Jill, they can bring this actor back and we can see if he can do uh, Ladder Pacino. I would love uh, <laughs> to see... I would love to see someone act out, someone recreate Dunkachino. Dunkachino scene. It's funny that like this, I had never seen Kid Who Stays in a Picture, and I watched it because of this. Because the whole time I was watching it, my wife was like, just throwing a fit, just being like, "Oh God, they, 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 this is wrong," and oh, they should have made Kid Stays in a Picture. Like, hey, that's so much better. And so I actually sat and watched it, and it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. It's so good because it's just from the point of view of Robert Evans. It's him telling his story. He's the narrator of the movie. And it's so entertaining. It's so great. And Evans and doesn't. Evans does like, like anybody does, on some level, some more than others. They like you know, uh, uh, what's the right word? Like, uh, you know, they're the hero of their own story. Like their self-aggrandizement and like you know, so like yeah, he's the guy that got Ali McGraw and he saved the Godfather. Uh, but he also really also vilifies himself. He's the hero of his own story and he's the villain of his own story. So he's open about the uh, you know the the drug problems he had and the shady dealings he had and the misses he had like he thought you know what what movie was going to be a hit but it was actually a flop. We we need Matthew Good to do a Kid stays in the picture show. Kid stays in the picture show. Or movie. The mo- other movie that it made me want to watch and they did immediately afterwards was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which also is around the same era, the early 70s in Hollywood. Also has people impersonating celebrities. But I really like that movie, and and like, <laughs> it has Steve McQueen as a character, and it has Roman Polanski as a character, and Sharon Tate, and many other people. But like that movie bends the truth drastically, but it doesn't feel silly. It doesn't feel stupid. <laughs> it totally works. And uh, yeah, I feel like this 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 show is just a, a, a bad uh, version of that in The Sopranos and everything else. It just really doesn't work ultimately in the end. This is an offer you can refuse. That's what yeah, and say also, the what is what? Is, what offer? What, what of saying, "Hey, white dude, do you want to produce a movie?" Okay, yeah. that's the offer. That's the offer. There's like so many references to the movie, which like are unnecessary because the whole show is a reference to the movie. So I get it when someone eats a cannoli or whatever. Yeah, when someone like <laughs> takes a cannoli or they leave a cannoli <laughs> or when um, the the mob war starts up again with the Columbos and someone says like this happens every 5 to 10 years like yeah, I get that's what Fat Clemenza says. Uh, yeah. I, I get it. Um, Lou Ferrigno plays Luca Brazzi, the actor who played Luca Brazzi. Yeah, yeah. that's that's worth mentioning. Uh, Lenny Montana one of the mafia guys who uh, they they put a mafia guy on set to like just kind of stand in there and eat sandwiches and have a sort of flirty relationship with uh, with Juno Temple which that I I oddly liked that dynamic yeah because he was into her he liked her and she was liked him like he's a nice guy 
but he's also a mafia guy. I don't want to get involved. And she was like clear about that in the way she behaved. Uh, so I, I ended up liking that relationship, maybe because uh, this mafia guy, Caesar, has this kind of like he's dangerous, but he's also kind of charming. It's a very Bobby Cannavale vibe <laughs> I get from this guy, from from this Jake Cannavale guy. <laughs> so is he yeah. related? He, must... he is the son of Bobby Cannavale. Oh wait, how old is Bobby Cannavale to have a son that old? I didn't realize he was that old. Than, either older <laughs> or the kid than I thought, really or young. Getting, yeah. Um, I mean, Bobby Cannavale, if this is really your son, which I think uh, he is, uh, you're looking pretty good. You're looking uh, pretty good for being the son of a full-grown man. It's worth noting the guy who plays um, Crazy Joe Gallo also plays Joe Pesci in Jersey Boys, the Clint hey. Eastwood movie. Also worth noting, because I, I like try to bring this up in every episode, the guy who plays Joe Gallo also in The Irishman, as is uh, the guy who plays, plays Mario Puzo. Yeah. He's also in The Irishman. So, uh, yeah. We're constantly going to talk about The Irishman. Somehow we'll always bring... It's just that know, good. It's just that good. I want to... Where's always... the movie about the making of The Irishman? <laughs> and how they had like nine different cameras on set. <laughs> because there were the cameras for... There was the camera where Scorsese was directing. And there were the cameras that captured like the body heat or whatever that they would use to you know de-age the actors and Joe Pesci was like I don't know which camera not to look at <laughs> I only seen the Irishman once but it's burned into my mind and maybe it's just because we talk about it in every episode of, of a podcast that's not about Martin Scorsese and the Irishman any final thoughts do you think this will be do you think uh, Matthew Good will get an Emmy nomination despite this being a critical failure will people be able to see past the low quality of the show to see how the high quality of his performance. I feel like uh, if we're gonna like overthink it, I feel like Paramount, uh, you know, Viacom, CBS, whoever owns him now, whatever kid of Les Moonves is in charge, uh, <laughs> isn't even going to think about submitting Matthew Good specifically, or maybe. Uh, the offer broadly. Well, well, there. Is, I was in L.A. recently, and they did have a big billboard up campaigning for him, saying Matthew Good is better than good in the offer. <laughs> He's so good. There's an e at the end of his name. I mean, he is playing a real person and uh, a very uh, memorable figure from Hollywood history. So, like, I could see him getting an award, you know, uh, based just off of that. Giving a performance of, uh, of that style, uh, of that kind. But, yeah, I, I guess I just don't see it happening. Also, I must admit, uh, I don't pay much attention to the Emmys. Just, <laughs> who's the, who's the Emmy equivalent of you? Who's the, uh... Well, if this was a movie that was made, he I would have maybe gotten a supporting actor. Yeah, I would, he, he would really be on my list. I have to say, though, being, being a, a, an Oscars uh, uh, fanatic as I am, I was, I was really disappointed. I was disappointed by the way the 1972 Oscars were uh, portrayed. Beyond it, beyond it just being a low-budget version of it. Beyond that, because like, I expect that. like Even if it was a movie, so like in 
the show like yeah it's they, they filled up a screening room and tried to make it look like the Oscars auditorium and if it was a movie they'd have rented an empty movie theater and tried to make it look like the Oscars auditorium and you never see the stage so the Godfather and Cabaret had the most nominations with 10 apiece we talked about this in our Godfather episode you just figure well the Godfather won all the Oscars it's the you know it's the one movie of we the all greatest love, movies yeah. ever. But it actually only won three. It won screenplay, actor, and picture. And Cabaret won essentially the rest of yeah, them. director and all that. I thought that would be, you know, when they announced the, uh, announced the director category and Francis doesn't win, Evan says, like, uh, you'll, like, you'll get the next one. I thought he meant for the second movie, the next movie. But he <laughs> meant, like, the next category. And then, yeah, he wins screenplay, but then Cabaret wins the next, <laughs> another award, and they lose a supporting actor to Joel Grey for Cabaret. But then they win Best Picture, and they're all, like, you know, surprised and happy and whatever. But, like, that should have been more of a dramatic moment. I didn't feel they found a way to really emphasize how, like, we made the biggest movie ever. The, it came out in March. The Oscars were held a full calendar year, year, year later. later. Yeah. And our movie is still making money. It's like still a big hit. Like we're going to and we got all these Oscars. We're going to win. Like oh, we didn't win that one. Okay, we didn't win that one. We didn't win that one either. Not that one. Not that one. Not Okay, we won that one. Not that one. Okay, I guess we're not going to win best picture. Wait, wait. We won best picture? <laughs> oh my god. There should have been, like, that was a chance for some real tension. The the part that I thought was crazy was the, so, the year, that year, Marlon Brando wins. He, Satchin Littlefeather, accepts his award. sitting next to Coppola. Sitting next to Coppola. Probably until this year's Notorious Slap, the most famous moment in Oscar history. I think it's, like, the most talked about. It's the most known, like... Oscar yeah. speech thing was that Marlon Brando refused to win or refused to get his award and had a Native American woman come up and talk about the uh, the poor way that they were treated in films and in society and it was a big deal and people booed and Sinatra came out and apologized for her speech for ruining the show because he's a piece of shit and uh, that could have been a moment especially since Sinatra is this big villain in this movie. Why not lean into that and have him be considered this like garbage douchebag by apologizing that their night was ruined by a Native American woman? But it's really done. It's done off screen where it happens, and then like later on, they're like, "Oh, it was weird that Marlon did." Like it's like done as an afterthought. When it's like, guys, that could have been a real interesting moment too. They missed out, and I mean, Uh, I get like they decide not to show people on stage. They could have showed this moment, this like really iconic, yeah, tied in with the Godfather moment. <laughs> moment, and there's so much, like there's so much we don't see. Of... <laughs> but the thing is, if you showed it, it would take away from the emotional impact we're supposed to get when El Ruddy wins and gives whatever speech that I don't remember because it was just some producer who paid for the movie and he got a speech in. But it's like <laughs> that's supposed to be this big moment, but it doesn't feel like it. Uh, in this show it's uh, not a great show I would say it's worth watching if you are like very very into Copeland and the Godfather like we are like I don't regret watching it but it is definitely not good yeah it's it's okay <laughs> one this uh, 
I think I, I, I said this could be called White Privilege, the series. <laughs> it could also be called Padding, the series. <laughs> there is just so much extraneous stuff in here. And the stuff they didn't, they could have elaborated on, they could have dramatized or just made up like stuff about, like we could have seen Sashin Littlefeather give her speech. We could have focused a bit more on that. But they decided not to do that. And oh, then focus more on like Joe Colombo's problems uh, with the mafia and with his with his version of Charlie Bluehorn, and like okay, like uh, this is uh, this is an all right scene for a show about Joe Colombo, which I didn't know I was watching, <laughs> but apparently I am, and I'm still watching it, and I'm still watching it, and I'm still watching it. Uh, so I forgot to mention that when we're talking about the reactions of real people involved. Peter Bart wrote a long thing, a long article for Deadline about how, like, what didn't happen. <laughs> Robert Evans never found a dead rat in his bed <laughs> that the mafia left for him. He ultimately says that this uh, could be filed under science fiction. <laughs> Which, again, is weird because it seemed like there's enough truth in it that could have made it compelling, maybe not a 10-hour thing, but, like, a two-hour thing. Why make it up? Why, like, know, is, is El Ruddy just, like, some senile man and he was just ranting and then the people wrote it all down and like, oh, this is gold. And it's like, he's just misremembering. Well, in an article, <laughs> in the article I read... Um, make his legacy seem more interesting or I don't The article I read mentioned that the uh, showrunners... They they interviewed Al Ruddy like for five days. Well, he's and lied then, and and then wrote about <laughs> and then wrote the series based on that. As opposed to like all the f- millions of facts that actually exist about one of the most famous movies of all time. Yeah, and then didn't and then didn't consult with anyone else. And or like, even Wikipedia. <laughs> like, yeah, consult well, then, with like the most basic shit. And it's like, and then they <laughs> didn't consult with anyone else. Like they did this in a vacuum. <laughs> and it's like no shit. If you're gonna just interview the producer, you're gonna have a very weird version. And of course, the producer's gonna think that they were the creative mastermind behind the Godfather, not like Coppola or whatever. Like it's just so also, silly. It's not. But, it's not officially credited as like based on. But at, I don't know if you caught in the credits, which go by real quick. At the end of every episode, it says like special thanks to. Um, this book, The Godfather Gang, in Hollywood, Everything is Personal, by Ernest Lupinacci. I've never heard of this book. I assume it's about the making of The Godfather, like as many books are. Um, so I don't know how much they consulted that book. <laughs> or talk to Coppola or any other people. <laughs> Watch Kid Stays in the Picture. Watch the literally the making of The Godfather on the DVD of The Godfather. It's <laughs> like, I did. I did that for this podcast. If I was making a show about it, maybe I also would have watched it <laughs> for that. Yeah. So I, get, I guess uh, ultimately this show, would I recommend it? Like only if... You're a movie nerd, not like if you're a Godfather fan, like people that have posters of, of Marlon Brando and that quote the Godfather all the time. But like, I love the minutia of movies and movie making. So this has a scene where a cinematographer 
and the set designer have an argument like yes i want to see that <laughs> and i'd recommend it for that if you are like me and you liked the movie business part of entourage yeah if then you're... you would probably think this show is okay like if, i did if you're excited about a scene where someone plays elvin sergeant and they talk about paper moon then this show is for you <laughs> i was so excited about that <laughs> and those parts are great and like i nerd out at those parts and yeah the rest of it is ridiculous um <laughs> well that's do you have any any other final thoughts on this we've it, talked about it longer than i thought we would i'm i'm surprised me too um <laughs> though uh shorter than the show <laughs> No padding or tangents or no Joe Colombo to pad out this episode. <laughs> yeah, like, I guess if you have Paramount Plus already... Sure, put it on while you're maybe doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> Look up whenever Robert Evans shows up or Coppola or Puzo and then just kind of yeah, do your grocery list. There are, or... <laughs> there is good stuff in it. The stuff with Coppola and Puzo, the stuff with Evans... Evans's personal story, like that, the stuff with Alan McGraw, that's interesting. The stuff with Ruddy and and his girlfriend, not interesting. I don't think this is the show to sign up to Paramount Plus for. Uh, There's other good stuff on there. Paw yeah, Ru was very good. RuPaul's All Star Drag Race, very yeah. good. That's worth the price. Of Every season <laughs> of Survivor. Uh, the new Jackass movie's on there. Yeah. Jackass 4. <laughs> the new Beavis and Butthead. I haven't seen it yet, but oh, there's a new Beavis and Butthead movie. It's in my list. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to get back on track to Coppola uh, after this little detour, and we're doing Jack. I never thought I'd be excited about doing Jack, but the that's how not great the offer is, that uh, <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to doing Jack, a movie I don't remember fondly. But who knows, now that we're watching it in the context of the Coppola-verse... It'll Maybe be I'll very interesting to watch in that context. I've only ever seen it as a child whenever it came out and I was like 11 or 10 or whatever. And back before we knew Bill Cosby was a real-life villain. Yeah. So that'll be interesting as well. Okay. And the sad de uh, death of Robin Williams. So there's going to be a lot of ghosts in this movie. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I think it's so, going uh, to be an interesting... Uh, Tune in for our our surprisingly most uncomfortable episode ever <laughs> on the children's movie Jack. <laughs> you know who could have predicted back in 1990, whatever when that movie came out. Yeah, uh, yeah, but we'll we'll get into that next. That that'll be thrilling. We're we're deep, we're getting into the 90s now. We started with Co uh, Dr uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. And now we're moving on to Jack for the next one. All right. Brian, you have another podcast? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the world is wrong. Right now we're on a little bit of a hiatus between season two and three. But uh, you can go back and listen to any of our older episodes if, you, if you're if you not sick of hearing my voice. And, uh, yeah, we'll have a new season coming out in a few months. All right. And, um, yeah. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at the Director's Wall. Uh, we don't post too much on there, uh, just stuff related to uh, the podcast. Uh, we also have an Instagram called the Director's Wall, um, and I'm always on there. So if you have a question or a statement or a complaint, I will answer it pretty promptly. <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd um, uh, uh, at AJGO85. Uh, the same 
also on Twitter, which I'm not on because, you know, uh, the world is the way it is. So, And Twitter is the worst part of that. <laughs> yeah. Do you need to be constantly staring at bathroom graffiti? No, you don't. <laughs> you can email us direct at the directorswall at gmail.com. And uh, we will talk about uh, these... <laughs> We'll have an uncomfortable conversation <laughs> next time. Well, we don't have to. We can, the conversation know. itself will not be uncomfortable. But there'll be some parts where we'll be like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about maybe the oddest movie in Coppola's filmography, Jack. When I thought I was out, they pulled me back in.